1: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
2: Before last Friday, Donald Trump would frequently rail against advice columnist E. Jean Carroll and her claims that he sexually abused her.
3: And yeah, I'm going to go to it and I'm going to explain. I don't know who the hell she is. I have no idea. They called me up years ago and they said, do you know about this woman 25 or 30 years ago. She doesn't even know the date, the
2: time, the month, the season. She has no idea. And though Trump did go to the trial, he didn't get a chance to explain that or much of anything else on the stand. And since a jury delivered a stunning $83.3 million verdict against him on Friday, there's been perhaps just as stunning silence from the former president on the subject. It took only three hours of deliberations for the Manhattan federal jury to return the verdict in the trial in which Carol claimed Trump defamed her when he denied he sexually assaulted her. The award includes $18.3 million in compensation for harm caused to Carol's reputation, plus $65 million in punitive damages to penalize Trump and deter him from engaging in any future defamation. Trump has called the verdict absolutely ridiculous and says he'll appeal. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter in English. So the descriptions of Trump's behavior in the court are off the chart. Shaking his head, muttering as Eugene Carroll testified, sparring with the judge who threatened to kick him out of the courtroom, and then this drama of storming out of the courtroom during her attorney's closing argument. Do you think that contributed in any way to the jury's verdict? Well, I think that it
3: did, because what typically happens is that jurors form a bond with the presiding judge. The judge has time to talk to them during the trial. He sometimes will make general small talk with them while they're waiting for the trial to begin. And they form a bond with the judge and they look to the judge as the arbiter of how this proceeding ought to go forward. They see that the judge controls the courtroom, the judge makes the decisions. And if, a, and if jurors see a defense lawyer or a defendant acting in a way that seems to disrespect the judge and disrespect the process, often juries will find that distasteful and that's not good for the outcome of the defendant.
2: Also, it played into Carol's closing arguments. She argued that Trump acted as if the law didn't apply to him and said that this trial is about punishing him for the malicious nature of his attacks, right up to and including this trial. It's all about getting him to stop once and for all. So she played into his behavior in the courtroom.
3: No, that's exactly right. From the plaintiff's side of the case, this couldn't have played out any better because what the plaintiff's lawyer was arguing is that Mr. Trump was asserting the rules that apply to everybody else do not apply to him. And rather than sit there stoically in the courtroom when these accusations were being made against him, even though they were extremely distasteful, his conduct suggested very much what the plaintiffs were arguing here, which is that he does not believe that the rules did apply to him. So in many ways, he reinforced exactly the theme that the plaintiffs' lawyers were trying to establish throughout the trial.
2: And, you know, Trump does brag about his wealth that's been going on for as long as I can remember. It seemed to backfire on him, though, because Eugene Carroll's lawyers played part of a deposition, Trump's deposition, in the lawsuit by the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, where he said, we have a lot of cash. I believe we have substantially in excess of $400 million in cash, which is a lot for a developer. And then, Carol's attorney shot back in closing arguments that you can consider Donald Trump's wealth. Billions of dollars is just a drop in the bucket for Trump. So maybe that's where that huge punitive award came from?
3: Well, I think you're right, because what the plaintiffs were arguing is that what this trial was about was trying to deter Donald Trump from making future statements that defamed E. Jean Carroll. And the only way to do that, according to the plaintiff's lawyer, was to return a verdict with a penalty, a financial penalty that was significant enough that it would actually get former President Trump's attention and deter him from making those future comments. So by playing the prior testimony and the deposition testimony of former President Trump about his substantial wealth, it really signaled to the jury that if they were going to find damages that were going to deter his future conduct, that amount had to be significant in order to be effective.
2: He hasn't said anything so far about the verdict, which is sort of astonishing. Maybe it worked. His attorney, Alina Haba, fought with the judge over and over, over everything from his limiting Trump's testimony to, you know, rules of evidence. She also fought with the judge in the New York Attorney General's case. Why argue with the judge? Is she perhaps thinking that it might be a point on appeal?
3: Well, as a general rule, you don't want to fight with the judge because you want to show respect for the court and respect for the process. Sometimes, though, you're arguing with the judge in order to try to get an issue that will resonate on appeal. So in there are times where a defense lawyer may actually try to provoke a judge into a ruling or into making a statement in front of the jury that might result in reversible error. So there could have been a lot of things going on there. They were also, at the end of the day, remember, playing to the jury. So if there was somebody on the jury who really believed that former President Trump was the victim here and that his free speech rights were being curtailed because he was not permitted to deny the sexual assault allegation from the prior trial, that might have resonated with a juror too but apparently did not happen in this case. And fighting with the judge does generally backfire on the defense because jurors tend to respect judges and arguing with them is viewed as disrespectful and viewed as simply trying to obstruct the trial.
2: In the New York Attorney General's trial, you had Judge Engoron, who seemed to be a little more laissez-faire in the courtroom. But in this trial, you had Judge Kaplan, who is extremely strict, known for that, running a tight courtroom. So What does it say about Trump's future behavior in a criminal case, in one of the four criminal cases he's facing, where he would have to be in the courtroom every day? Do you think it's even possible for him to sort of behave like a normal defendant?
3: Well, that's a good question. And you make a good point that this is a civil case. And so former President Trump was not required to attend. He could attend if he wanted to, but he also could not be there if he chose not to. But in a criminal case, he does have to be there for every day and every moment of the proceeding. And that means, as a defense lawyer, you have to instruct your client to control themselves during the proceeding, because you remember that jurors are constantly looking at the defendant throughout a trial. They're not only listening to the testimony coming from the witness stand, they're not only listening to the arguments of the lawyers during the trial, but they are looking at both the plaintiff and the defendant or in a criminal case, both the prosecution and the defendant to gauge their reaction to the testimony. So a criminal defendant or a defendant in any civil case is always on in that respect in that jurors are watching them, looking at their reaction. And that ultimately factors into how they make their decision.
2: Trump says they're going to appeal. And I'm wondering what the appellate issues might be. The judge did severely limit his defense and what he could say on the stand. Is that a possible argument on appeal?
3: Well, I certainly think it will be one of the issues raised on appeal because the key ruling in this case that came before the trial started when Judge Kaplan ordered former President Trump's legal team not to attempt to argue in court that he didn't sexually assault Eugene Carroll. That was really one of the critical arguments that the defense wanted to make in this case. And Judge Kaplan said that that would essentially be a do-over of the first trial, which he lost in May when a jury found him liable for sexually abusing Carol more than two decades ago. And in that trial, there was $5 million that was awarded. So by taking that argument away, it essentially prevented former President Trump from denying the allegations that were at the heart of this case. Trial number two, which is the trial that was just concluded, was simply about the question of damages. And it was very difficult for the defense to control their client because you have there a defendant, former President Trump, who continues to deny that he sexually assaulted E. Jean Carroll or that he even knew E. Jean Carroll. And that was the defense they wanted to argue, but the court said they couldn't. They still got that in. Former President Trump took the stand for about three minutes and denied the underlying sexual assault. But the jury was immediately instructed by the judge to disregard that testimony. And whenever a judge instructs a jury to disregard testimony from a defendant or a witness or to disregard arguments made by a lawyer, that undermines the credibility of that witness or that lawyer with the jury. And that's never a good thing.
2: So, Bob, the two verdicts in this case, I'm wondering if they pose any problem because it was another jury, as you say, who made the decision that Trump was liable for sexually abusing Carol. That jury awarded five million dollars. The second jury who didn't hear that evidence, but rather heard the judge who, as you mentioned before, a figure of authority that the jury usually believes. And he said that Trump did sexually assault Carol. And he said that more than once in different ways. And then this jury awards Carol eighty three point three million dollars. That's more than sixteen times the award of the first jury, who found that he was liable for sexually assaulting her. Is there any problem with the contrast in those two verdicts?
3: Well, the appeals court will probably look at these two cases. The difference between case number one and case number two is that case number one, that went to trial in in twenty nineteen, was about statements that were made by. Former President Trump after he left office. The reason there were two trials here is because there were statements that were made by former President Trump while he was president. That was tied up in appeals as the former president's legal team argued that he had immunity for those statements. So it's possible that an appeals court could say that defamatory statements that were made by somebody while they were president carried even more weight than statements made when they were a former president. But they will be looking at the juxtaposition of those two verdicts on those two awards to determine whether this $83 million verdict is excessive.
2: Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, I'll continue this conversation with former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, and we'll talk about how much money Trump has to put up in order to appeal the verdict. It's a civil case where money is at stake, not his freedom. But Donald Trump has been railing against the E. Jean Carroll defamation case with as much fervor, or perhaps more, than he has about the four criminal cases against him.
3: Yeah, Well, that's another one. That's uh, sponsored by Reed Hoffman and some Democrat operatives. I never saw this woman in my life, other than they have a picture with her and her husband, Uh, John Johnson, a nice guy who was a newscaster many years ago. I remember him, and she said horrible things about him uh, since. I mean, horrible, horrible things, called him bad names. Uh, I have no idea who this woman is. I have absolutely no idea. The whole thing is ridiculous that this is even a case. This should never have happened.
2: And last Friday after the Manhattan jury delivered its stunning verdict of 83.3 million dollars 18.3 million in compensation for harm caused to Carol's reputation plus 65 million in punitive damages to penalize Trump the former president posted this on Truth Social absolutely ridiculous i fully disagree with both verdicts and will be appealing this whole Biden directed witch hunt and They have taken away all First Amendment rights. This is not America. But the road to an appeal will require Trump to part with a hefty amount of cash if he doesn't secure a bond. If Trump decides to put money in escrow in lieu of a bond, it could amount to as much as 110% of the judgment. On top of that, a verdict is expected this week in New York civil fraud trial, which seeks the return of $370 million in illegal profits Trump allegedly made by lying to banks about his wealth to get better terms on loans. I've been talking to former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner, McCarter & English. Bob, we discussed Trump appealing based on the way the judge limited his defense. Any other appellate issues you see? Judge
3: Kaplan made a number of significant pretrial rulings that really hemmed in the defense here, which will likely form the basis of an appeal. He barred Trump and his lawyers from making arguments at trial concerning Carol's choice of lawyer and the fact that her litigation was financed by somebody with close ties to the Democratic Party. He also barred the defense team from presenting arguments concerning Ms. Carol's past romantic relationships and really prevented the defense. From focusing on Eugene Carroll and more focusing on the statements that were made by former President Trump. Now, the heart of the defense here at this trial was ultimately that the statements made by former President Trump did not actually damage her reputation, but enhanced it. So the defense argued that Eugene Carroll was essentially down on her luck, that the money she was making as an advice columnist had essentially dried up. And that she made these claims only to try to restart her career. And that ultimately, by making the statement, she actually became more famous and actually increased her reputation and her earning capacity. Ultimately, the jury did not accept that. They were able to hear testimony about threats that were made against her. And obviously, the falsity of those statements was something that they took into account in terms of reaching their verdict here. But those will be issues that I expect will be raised on appeal as well.
2: And Trump might also raise on appeal the damages calculation that the defense wanted the judge to instruct the jury on. Tell us about that.
3: One of the other interesting arguments raised by the defense on the question of damages was whether or not the court should adopt a gross versus net view of the damages. In other words, the defense was arguing that even if the statements were defamatory, the court needed to look at the total impact of those statements to determine damages. So in other words, it's possible they argued that a defendant could make a defamatory statement that injured someone's reputation in one part of the community, but actually enhanced it in another. So they were trying to argue that while you could point to people who supported President Trump and say that her reputation was damaged by the statements that he made about her, in other parts of the community, her reputation was actually enhanced. She became essentially a celebrity over this case. And they did point to the fact that well-known people were coming to her aid. Suddenly, everybody knew who she was. And they asked the judge to look at that issue and in determining damages to instruct a jury that they had to consider not just the gross damages, but they had to take whatever the gross damages were and then discount them by the portion of the population who actually would view her reputation as having been enhanced by these statements, not simply damaged by them.
2: Bob, before we get to the mechanics of an appeal, explain the basics here. Some people say, well, Trump was just trying to defend himself. It's his First Amendment right to say that I didn't commit that crime. And in fact, there was no criminal conviction. I mean, these are all civil cases. And so the first jury found him liable for sexually assaulting E. Jean Carroll by a preponderance of the evidence. That's a little more than 50%. Whereas if it were a criminal case, a jury would have to find him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt.
3: As you say, former President Trump was never charged criminally in this case, obviously. He was never convicted of sexually assaulting or raping Eugene Carroll. And in this trial, he was not allowed to stand up in front of the jury and deny the underlying charges about this case. And that was what he found frustrating and then ultimately unable to do. So the question is, why was he unable to defend himself from the defense standpoint? They argued that it was essentially a free speech right, that he ought to be able to say that he never sexually assaulted her. But the judge in this case ruled that that decision had already been made in the first trial where that issue was addressed former President Trump decided not to take the stand. So he never defended himself in front of the jury. And he was trying to do that for the first time in the second trial. But the judge ruled that he wasn't permitted to do it. That would essentially be a do-over. So the question that raises in many people's minds is why were his comments defamatory? And what it basically boils down to is that you can defend yourself against an accusation by denying that you did something. So former President Trump, could have said in the first trial and could have said even in his statements that formed the basis of this trial, that he did not commit the sexual assault that E.G. and Carroll had alleged that he did. But the defamation comes into play because what he cannot do is then impugn her motives. And that's what happened here. He can't, for example, say that she lied for monetary gain or that she lied for other reasons. You can say that you didn't do something, But you can't say that the other person did something that they didn't do. And that was what this case was ultimately about.
2: Trump says he's going to appeal, but he can't just file papers. First, he has to put up some money. Explain that process.
3: Sure. So former President Trump is appealing both verdicts, uh, the earlier verdict for $5 million, now this one for $83 million. And he has two options, basically. He can pay the money into the court system, which is what he did. For the five million dollar verdict, he simply paid that into the court system, and that money is held by the court while the appeal is pending. Alternatively, he can try to secure an appeal bond, which would save him from having to pay the full amount into the court. What that would do is, would be to essentially assure Miss Carroll that Mr. Trump has the money to pay if ultimately he's unsuccessful on appeal, but it prevents them from collecting the money while the appeals are being heard. The problem with getting a bond in this circumstance is that former President Trump has to find a company willing to write a bond when he's facing other significant legal jeopardy. And the value of the bond is likely to be about 110% of the verdict, which would mean he would need a $92 million bond. And he also would have to pay the bonding company a substantial premium. And there's also a question of what collateral he would have to put up. He might not be able, for example, to post properties as collateral. The bonding company might demand that he plagues liquid assets Certificates of deposit or treasury bonds. So, although the bonding option is certainly available, and he may avail himself of that given the size of this verdict, it's not going to be that easy to get a bond in this circumstance.
2: So then he'd have to put up the cash plus ten percent. If he decides to put the cash
3: up, he would have to pay that money into the court, and the court would hold that money until the appeals were exhausted.
2: And that could be years down the road. And this week, Judge. And Goron could issue his verdict in the New York Attorney General's case against Trump, which could mean hundreds of millions of dollars more in damages. Thanks so much for being on the show, Bob. That's former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner, McCarter and English. In other legal news today, House Republicans are taking the next steps in the impeachment inquiry against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. They accuse Mayorkas of failing to curb the influx of migrants at the border. But the DHS says their efforts aren't based in fact or evidence. That is a bipartisan group of senators are trying to iron out an immigration reform bill. Democratic Senator Chris Murphy, one of the principal negotiators, said there's a possibility for a vote sometime this week. But even if there's meaningful progress in the Senate, the question becomes, would the House take up this legislation? Speaker Mike Johnson has said he's skeptical of the deal. And during her briefing today, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre was asked about former President Trump's recent pushes for his party to reject a bipartisan deal over the border.
4: This is exactly
2: what they've been asking for, literally what Republicans have been asking for. And now here it is. It's coming to fruition. It's being discussed. There's potential bipartisan agreement. That's what the American people want to see. Seventy-five percent of the American people have said that they want this issue to be dealt with, an issue that, again, that they have been for, that they have been for for years. So they should get on board. In the meantime, Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott is finding long-distance allies in his battle with the federal government over border policy. Last week, the Supreme Court said that U.S. Border Patrol agents may legally cut the razor wire the state of Texas has put up along the Rio Grande. But here's what a defiant Abbott told Bloomberg News.
5: We are adding uh, more razor wire as we speak right now to uh, make sure that we are doing even more to secure the border. Uh, it, we are going to make it Uh, impossible to enter Texas illegally. Uh, And that includes uh, maintaining the National Guard on the border, building more border wall, just like what President Trump put up, as well as extending the razor wire wall in the state of Texas.
2: And in a show of support for Abbott and Texas, 26 Republican attorneys general demanded in a letter today that the Biden administration, quote, enforce the laws that secure the southern border. Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd said the invasion on our southern border has made every state a border state. And Idaho Governor Brad Little is sending two teams of Idaho state troopers to act as, quote, a force multiplier at our lawless southern border. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, Exxon is taking a novel path to block a climate vote by shareholders. It's taking activist investors to court. But will it work? with its novel path to block shareholder climate votes. The company is trying an unusual approach of using the court system to keep environmental and social investor bids out of its annual meeting. The Houston oil company is, of course, no stranger to pressure from activist investors over its greenhouse gas emissions. It's been facing a shareholder push for greater climate impact targets for three consecutive years. But last week, it took a rather unusual step in fighting the pressure by suing activist shareholders Arjuna Capital and follow this in federal court, hoping to kill the proposal. This is possibly the first time that a company has sued an activist investor over a shareholder proposal before initially filing an objection with the Securities and Exchange Commission, which routinely weighs in on whether companies should have to face certain investor bids. Joining me is Bruce Goldfarb, the president and CEO of Okapi Partners. This is the third year in a row that Exxon is facing a shareholder push for greater climate impact targets. For the uninitiated, how do companies usually fight or thwart proposals from activist shareholders?
5: Very interesting question, because there's been a real evolution in the process for companies addressing shareholder proposals to be uh, voted on at their annual meetings and typically the shareholders submit a proposal under sec rule 14a8 and that rule provides the 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 proponent with the ability to make a proposal and provide a statement uh, within the proxy material unless the company has a way to exclude the, the statement. For many years, companies were able to rely on exceptions to Rule 14A8 uh, and request an exemption uh, to exclude the proposal. They could use what was called no action relief. They would send a letter to the SEC and request no action be taken against the company where they to exclude the proposal. In more recent years, uh, especially since the Biden administration has um, taken over, the SEC has, has changed their view of what proposals would potentially gain that no action exemption. And so we are now experiencing that more proposals are submitted and included in proxy materials than they have in the past. What Exxon has done in this most recent situation is said, rather than even attempt to receive a no action letter, they went to court to indicate that that the court would put out a declaratory judgment to exclude the shareholder proposal from their proxy material. And that is not it's not unprecedented, but it it is an unusual way to to approach addressing the problem. Of course, the other way to address these problems is to let the shareholders vote.
2: Why make a federal case out of this? Exxon argued that the proposal was similar to one put forward in 2022 and 2023. And last year, only 10.5% of shareholders voted in favor of the proposal. So, What does Exxon hope to gain by filing this case in federal court?
5: From the perspective of of a company who is looking to conduct a meeting of their shareholders, they're expecting to be voting on an annual basis to elect directors, to ratify auditors, and to conduct business of the company. In some instances, shareholder proposals become valid business of the company and in other instances, the shareholder meeting may not be the right forum. That's why Section 14A8 of the Securities Rules allows for companies to exclude certain proposals, especially if they are deemed to be ordinary business operations. And so Exxon is arguing that discussion of how they run their business. Uh, in terms of some environmental issues is, is ordinary business. And they, they actually make use of the voting results from prior years to indicate that their shareholders don't particularly want to expend the effort to move forward with this proposal. Why bring up the same idea over and over?
2: Exactly what are they asking the court to do? They're asking
5: the court uh, to allow them to exclude the proposal before they print their proxy material and have it distributed to their shareholders. There is a cost to putting forth shareholder proposals, especially for companies who have a large constituency of investors. The printing, mailing, distribution of materials, even electronically, has a cost. The time to evaluate the proposals is considerable. And in this instance, Exxon is arguing that this proposal is not fully relevant to the business that they do. Now, certainly investors, there are investors who disagree. There are investors who vote for the proposal. But there is, in many instances, a time and place To bring forth your issues as an investor and ultimately the challenge becomes one of floodgates and I I use the term ironically if we're talking about an environmental issue but here it's more of the floodgate of when and to what extent can an investor put forth a proposal how many proposals should a company have to address how do they address them what what will be the voting It can become unwieldy.
2: So how likely is it that a judge is going to grant Exxon's request, or might the judge say, you should have taken this to the SEC?
5: That's difficult for me to predict. It hasn't been a very common practice for companies to go directly to court, although it certainly has occurred in the past. And for example, uh, in 2010, Apache Corporation uh, went directly to court instead of to the no action process uh, to ask that, that the court determine that a proposal from a very active Gadfly investor not be submitted to their shareholders, and they, and they won that suit. But there have been other cases where, where the courts have turned down corporations and dismissed the lawsuit and so it's it's hard to say at this point
2: do you see this as a contentious particularly contentious proxy season
5: it is a challenging proxy season june we have so many um situations where there are investors who are active in in the companies in which they own we are experiencing some potential proxy fights at very large companies, including Starbucks and Disney. Uh, And we're also seeing shareholders make use of this 14A 8 process to submit proposals dealing with environmental matters and social matters and governance matters and political matters. And so it will be an active year and because we are in a year where there are great disagreements um, in the political sphere, and some of the business matters have become political, um, there'll be a lot to see.
2: As far as opposition to some investors' recent emphasis on ESG, environmental, social, and governance issues, is that coming up a lot?
5: Well, it's a very interesting time to talk about ESG together because the concepts of putting the E and the S and the G together for some investors create a construct that is problematic. And for other investors, there have been evolution in thought. So a few years ago, it was very significant to many investors that that companies were able to address the, the issues that were combined in an ESG basis. Governance is always important in the corporate realm, and I believe that there is agreement among almost all participants that a well-governed company is also a company that will ultimately achieve value for its shareholders. The issues on the E and S side are ones that that create more contention because there are uh, investors who will say, that we want to know when a situation will create a risk to value and in those instances we could be very supportive of a of a proposal that deals with natural resources or environmental matters same could be said for uh, the S component, whether uh, human capital matter, a workforce matter, a labor issue can create risk to value for a company, then investors can be supportive. But there is this uh, also a view, this anti ESG view, that says the proposals are decoupled from value creation in the company, and then th- those investors won't be supportive. We as as a firm that reaches out to shareholders and effectively runs election campaigns on behalf of companies and investors we we experience the views of all of these participants and we we help our clients understand the the most uh, effective methodology for achieving their goals
2: Do you think that if Exxon succeeds here more companies will go to court
5: Undoubtedly If there is one thing that you do notice in the corporate world, a successful campaign potentially leads to another campaign.
2: Thanks so much, Bruce. That's Bruce Goldfarb, president and CEO of Okapi Partners. In Supreme Court news today, March is shaping up to be a blockbuster month at the court. The battle over the availability of medical abortion will be argued at the court on March 26th, one of several high-profile cases the justices will hear during their March sitting. They'll consider whether the federal government went too far in easing access to mifepristone, one of two drugs used to end early-term abortions. In the calendar released today, the justices also scheduled arguments... For March 18th, in a dispute over the Biden administration's efforts to combat online misinformation regarding COVID, election fraud, and other hot-button issues. A group of social media users and states say federal officials coerce social media platforms to censor certain content. And also on March 18th, they'll hear a First Amendment dispute involving the National Rifle Association. And it's the Progressive American Civil Liberties Union that's representing the NRA in a challenge to New York officials' alleged attempts to pressure insurance companies and other financial institutions into blacklisting the gun rights group. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Podcast. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by subscribing and listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and this
1: is Bloomberg.